Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. I got a gourd. I didn't tell you about this before we started recording. Look at this gourd. It looks like something I pulled out of the sea. Yes, it does. For people just listening, you're missing out. You got to go to YouTube to see the gourd. Looks like an octopus. True. That's, and until um, next time, we <laughs> <laughs> uh, need to squash to, this conversation. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we had a little air horn audio that I was going to play for this episode, and then we couldn't play it. It was just a nightmare scenario. But what we are going to do today is answer your questions from the mailbag. And we will do that on the other side of the music. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic, it's watered down, it has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. All right, welcome back to Do Theology. Uh, today we are going to go through several questions that we've gotten. Not all of them. Don't have time or willingness to go through all of them. <laughs> uh, it's so much easier to say time when a lot of times it's just, no, we're not willing to answer that question right now. But we are going to answer several of them. And we're going to start with our friend Obadiah. Obadiah actually followed the rules and sent us in an audio clip. And, you know, after hearing this, I hope it entices more people to send us an audio clip on Facebook. Go to Facebook yeah. Messenger, hold down to the little microphone icon, and leave us a voice message where we can you know, play your voice on the show and answer your question. I think Let it's a great in. thing. Yeah, it is cool. And so uh, we're going to start with an audio clip here from Obadiah. And he sent in a question talking about the age of the earth. For those of you familiar with the chart you'll know that we put age of the earth in the secondary column. And we talked about that on a previous episode, didn't we, Ken? Yes. Was that tweeners? Uh, possibly. Oh, golly, you're stretching my memory here. I think it was. But... It was tweeners. We were talking about losing salvation and age of the earth and And we else. definitely d- touched on it very briefly in, like, our overview episodes of the chart. But... And because yeah. we've we've only touched on it briefly, that has created a question in Obadiah's mind. And so let's listen to his question. Go to the mailbag. So um, listening to your podcast on losing salvation, gender roles, and age of the earth. And basically, I understand it's all surface level. I appreciate what you guys are saying on all three areas. I think it's very helpful stuff. Um, and because it's all surface level, that means there's a lot that's left you know, that, that, that is an answer. And so that's why I'm asking these questions. Uh, totally understanding you couldn't answer it then, so I'm hoping maybe you can answer it, at least personally for me. Um, when you guys say age of the earth, 
I don't know if you guys were very clear in the episode as to what all is in, uh, incorporated in your meaning of that. <clears throat> because, like, to, when you guys say age of the earth, are you including, like, gap theory and day-age theory? I know you guys aren't including evolution. Would you include theistic evolution at least before Adam? Because I know you guys would say if it's rejecting the historical Adam, that's a problem, and I would totally agree with you there. So I'm just curious if you guys could clarify what all is included in Age of the Earth, because I don't want to get into it right now. I, I, I could see us maybe having more discussion later, um, although I don't want to take up your time, but I would personally say if, I would say six-day creation should belong in the primary column, and Age of the Earth, if you're defining it a little differently, then I would put that in the secondary column, but <clears throat> um, to me, it seems to me that six-day creation transcends hermeneutics just as much as gender roles and losing salvation and uh, the Trinity and other things. All right. So we will cut Obadiah off there. Uh, he's asking for further clarity. What clarity do we want to give him, Ken? Yeah, so obviously the age of the earth, uh, he mentioned several things that he recognized that we're not including within that concept. So, you know, evolution, uh, we would view that as outside the bounds of historic Orthodox Christianity. And, uh, and, and for the reason he said, I mean, denying the historical Adam. Yes. That there's a major, major problem for on, on a few different levels. Uh, scri scripture says Adam is the first man. So you'd have to deny that. You'd have to change Paul's wording on that. Uh, scripture says that Adam introduced sin into the world and death came through sin. So you'd have to say there was sin and death before Adam. You'd have to change Paul on that. I mean, it just, it, so many issues. Yeah. It messes up the theology of pretty much everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, if you uh, begin to deny those things. Um, so when, then, okay. When did man have the image of God? Uh, right. What, what level of homo sapien had first had the image of God? Yeah. So then uh, he, he starts probing other areas. Okay, so certainly it, it, we're ruling that out, and that, that would be a, a primary column violation in that instance. Uh, but what about some of these other things? Like uh, I think he mentioned theistic evolution. Uh, and I think theistic evolution runs into some of the same difficulties that just regular old <laughs> evolution runs into with some of the things that we just mentioned. Uh, if we have sin and death prior to the fall, uh, that's incredibly problematic for, for our theologies, uh, not to mention just the biblical text as it lays it forth. Um, and, and once upon a time, I wrote an article that was titled Questions for the Theistic Evolutionist. There was either mm. 20 or 25, maybe 30. If we can remember, we'll link it in the show notes. There you go. Beyond that, uh, as we start getting into some of these other things like uh, gap theory or uh, day-age theory, just uh, just a brief explanation of what these things are. So day-age theory is the idea pulling from Second Peter chapter 3, where one day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And so therefore, in an effort, and again, each each of these theories is always in an effort to try to reconcile what we're seeing in the biblical text with what the supposed science shows us in creation and in the world. Today's and science, not, today's, tomorrow, not necessarily tomorrow's science. Correct, yes. What the, what the current scientific community 
I, there's not even a consensus. So I can, you can't even speak about it in terms like that. It often gets presented that way. Oh, the scientific community has cons, you know the complete consensus. It is not that monolithic, but it's presented that way. And so as a result, people try to reconcile these statements from the scientific community with with the scriptures and so they present things like the day age theory one day with the lord is a thousand years a thousand years is one day they try to say okay well creation those days of creation as it's laid forth in genesis 1 the first day he did this second day he did that and we just move through the days of creation well that's actually one day is actually a, a figurative term for an extended period of time. Maybe it's a thousand years, maybe it's, you know, 10,000 years, maybe it's a million years, and maybe it's a billion years, you know, and so all these things developed over this great big period of time when, as we look at the biblical text, I, it's really not, uh, it's not there in the text, right? So the day-age theory is really, I don't even think that's even a, uh, a very popular position, even amongst people that are trying to find extra time in Genesis, uh, because it's so easily debunked as you look at uh, the Hebrew words and the, the numbers, like uh, the morning and evening were one day, were the second day. Uh, very consistently throughout Scripture, it's always referring to a 24-hour period. So it, it, we can't really go that direction. I would say that that would be inconsistent with the biblical text. Obadiah went as far to say as it's as clear as the Trinity in Scripture, that the, the six literal days of creation are as clear as the Trinity. Would we say that? Because on that original episode that he was referencing, that was the tweeners episode, you had talked about uh, one of our professors in Bible college who yep. believed in an older earth up to 50,000 years old, obviously denying evolution still. That wouldn't be enough time for that theory to play out. Um, and it, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I feel like I could remember him saying that he could see a case for even, like he believes it was between 10 and 50,000 years old, but he wouldn't have any issue with, you know, maybe like 100,000 years old or something of that nature. Okay. Um, but that's not what he personally held to. It's just he was kind of okay with that. Which would have to so. deny either the literal six days of creation or the subsequent days that, that just... There's a lot of stuff missing in genealogies and records and stuff. Yeah, so that that professor still held to literal six day creation. Okay. Uh, his where he got the extra time is is he believed there was some telescoping going on with some of the genealogies, where being the father of someone didn't has, doesn't necessarily mean the literal biological father, but there could have been additional generations in between in the genealogies. And he supported that as you look at different genealogies throughout Scripture and try to line things up. There are places where that does happen, where uh, one or two generations are skipped for the sake of the flow of things or for different reasons. And so his argument was that that possibly could be occurring to a much greater scale within some of the the Genesis genealogies. Then you'd have to say... If it's 50,000 years old, say, that, uh, whoa, a really good chunk, like mm, 80% to 90% of what happened in world history we're completely unaware of through Scripture, (laughs) Uh, of human history. That's what you'd have to say, which would be a pretty interesting way of looking at. I mean, obviously, Scripture doesn't tell us every single thing that happened over however many thousands of years old the earth is. Well, but and you'd have to say that there are huge gaps of time, tens of thousands of years, where we don't have any record of anything that happened on the earth, when the flood was, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and, and honestly, 
I don't know. That that wouldn't make me uncomfortable with that argument. I'm not saying it makes me yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. It's just a par- total paradigm shift. Yeah. Because there are, there are periods of time in history where, where the scripture does just skip. Like, but, what, no. but what I'm saying is tens of thousands of years. We don't have that uh, no. with our view of scripture. So yeah, well, that well, would be a paradigm shift. With our view of scripture, we haven't even made it to the first tens of thousands of years. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so let's back up then and talk about the literal, is literal six-day creation as clear as the Trinity? Um, we're saying uh, what? I, I'm kind I was of about to say, to say yes. I, I was about to say we're saying no, and then I look, it looked like you were about to say yes. So yeah. now, I'll let you say your case, and then I'll say maybe what my case is. Well, when you read this, when you read the text, and then when you see how uh, how Scripture refers back to the days of creation, uh, it's the basis, as you know, for um, uh, the uh, observing of the the Sabbath week, as it's described in in the law. Um, there's different places. The Sabbath day, you mean? Yeah. This well, the yes, and we. I mean the. I'm, I'm using it as a, as a, the the term of the week, just the whole concept of the whole week and. The seven days, okay. um, referring yeah. it, it to that way. Um, so, to me, to me, there's enough. There's enough. Uh, just, just the natural reading of Genesis as it stands, and then adding in all of the ways that Scripture refers back to creation and the days of creation. Um, to me, that is quite clear. And those who take a different position on those things. Obviously, you don't want to. It's hard to isolate the, the the doctrine and such, um, but it is. It, it does appear to be one of those kind of slippery slope type things, though. Where once you start going down this road, where, what other things are you beginning to deny? And a lot of times, it leads to other first column violations. Well, let me talk about the other slippery slope, which is saying. This is clear to me. Therefore, if you deny it, you have denied primary doctrine, a definitional aspect of Christianity. Because I mean, I'm assuming you wouldn't say that denying literal six-day creation is on the same level as denying the Trinity, right? As long as the, we're not talking evolution, but but denying literal six-day creation um, is not on the same level as denying the Trinity. It's probably Agreed? not on this, the same level of of um, of implication, perhaps. Why not? Because that's where I'm. My, that's where my hangup is. Is like philosophically, if we're saying this is the same level of importance, it's. It's. Are we saying the same level of importance or same level of clarity? If we're saying same level of clarity, based on our chart, we're saying the same level of importance because those transcend hermeneutics, and that's what he mentioned in the uh, in the clip too. Yeah. Well, it's definitional dear, to the faith. Well, it's. It is the. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say it's not as clear as the Trinity because there are cases to be made from brothers and sisters in Christ that I don't, I'm not sold on them at all. Um, I'm a literal six day creationist and believe that the creation week, those first seven days were literal 24 hour periods. Um, but there are elements in scripture that can perhaps muddy the water on that because there, we don't have as many texts. And so we have a smaller pool. Um, we don't have as many texts as we do on, say, the Trinity. And so in that smaller pool that we have on the days of creation, the waters can be a bit muddied. 
if can, you choose can you provide to examples of that well one that it's written in poetry um that it's poetic language so there's the potential of metaphor uh, we do have passages that talk about God's relationship to time being different than our relationship to time. Uh, therefore, the language that's used in Genesis 1 could be in reference to God's relationship to time and not ours. Um, those would be the two main arguments where it's like, okay, um, I see what you're saying, I disagree with it, and here's why, and I can make a case against those. But... Um, to me, that's why that's how it doesn't rise to the same level as the historical Adam, say, uh, which is quite clear. Where does and the then poetry? There was yeah, well, see, see, this, this is where I, I, I we, well, dear listener, you have just entered into something that I don't know if we were anticipating this exactly, but the uh, perhaps the level of disagreement between our hosts. Um, I, I don't know. The, Say it ain't so. <laughs> We're supposed to be clones. <laughs> when does the the poetry stop and narrative begin? I don't know. I don't make that argument. See, and that, that's where I, I think it's kind of a, a yeah. And we recognize, too, that Genesis was given to the uh, generation coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. Okay, and so um, was the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 to give them a scientific account of how the world was created at that time? Was that Moses' purpose or the original intent in giving it to those people? Probably not. I, I mean, maybe, but I'd say probably not. Is there stuff we can glean from that that's scientific? Absolutely. Um, but that's just another thing to consider. That's part of their argument, and I think, yeah, okay. I can see where you're getting there. I disagree with you, but I can see where you're getting there. Well, this may warrant further discussion at uh, at another Maybe. time. Send it an audio clip, somebody. Yeah. Well. Well, we really cleared that one up. For <laughs> <time>. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Indeed. Well, let's let's. Uh, <laughs> I guess let's keep moving, and we'll a- answer a few more questions, and uh, maybe we'll have to iron out that at a later time. But uh, oh, very interesting. Uh, not, yeah, well, just to clarify, real quick, to end on a point of clarity, hopefully, we're not disagreeing in how we read Genesis. We're disagreeing true. on how to consider those who disagree with us. Yeah, and and I'm saying. Where you where the line sister, is. You, you can yeah. still be a brother or sister in Christ and a non-heretic and by believing in an old earth, as long as you don't embrace evolutionary theory, and you're saying they're going to burn in hell. So No, that we oh, have oh. never made that argument about the first column. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I was just providing a little clarity. <laughs> I suppose this is why we discussed this, this, that, that topic on the tweeners episode. As, yeah, as we're trying right. to wrestle with some of these issues about where is the line mm-hmm. when it gets kicked over to a first column issue versus being a secondary issue. Um, this is one of the more difficult things where, you know, I can I can allow for more leeway on the age of the earth in terms of, okay, you want to say it's 50,000, 100,000, whatever, um, but holding to, to the literal six-day creation seems abundantly clear uh, throughout all interpretive history even within the church um which carries no authority which carries but i mean what what you're saying is you can get to a hundred thousand years you just can't get there through a gap theory you can't get there 
you can get there through records weren't kept. God didn't give an inspired record of tens of thousands of years of generations. But if you're going to say that the creation days were longer than literal 24 hour periods, then you're a proper heretic. I'll think on it some more. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Logan asked, uh, what is the biblical stance on guns, war and killing to defend yourself and your family? Do it. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Dylan asks. (laughs) (laughs) That one was way easier. Yeah, it was way easier. Right, yeah. Um, Okay, can you you self-defend self-defense for us, Ken? I think so. So I think think, uh, there is uh, self-defense that includes uh, using lethal force at times is biblically defensible from Scripture. Uh, we see this uh, in different places of Scripture, where even within the law of Moses, where the law treated individuals defending their home differently, but depending on different circumstances. There's an example from Exodus chapter 22 that speaks of if a thief breaks into your house at night and you strike him, and in the context we're understanding that that's a, a striking in self-defense, and so such that the person dies, you're not legally accountable for that mm. person's death. Mm. They entered into your home. Uh, they were they were there for nefarious purposes, and you essentially brought about justice on that individual by defending yourself in that instance. And uh, but that, that's found where? It's Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 and 3. And someone says, well, that's the law of Moses, and Christ has called us to a higher law. Well, we're going to get there to the New Testament. Oh, oh okay. Very good. Yeah. So we we can use Old Testament law for principal purposes, where we understand as the as the text explains Not things. Not only can of course, we, should we? Absolutely, yes, we should. One hundred percent, we should. Where we see the law of Moses as it was given, there were obviously you know, as we've discussed on this uh, podcast before, and even you can go back and listen to the Matthew Ferris interview on the role of the law. Uh, we don't see the breakdown of moral, civil, and ceremonial, and all those sorts of things in in the law and the scripture, uh, but we do see ongoing use and and significance and applicability of the law, but more in a principalized form, uh, rather than uh, just you know don't eat shellfish and you know don't wear mixed fabrics and such. So we we have to strive to understand the principles of what's at play. And so we see that in Exodus, where there's uh, provisions within the law for self-defense. As we do come into the New Testament, we, we there's a, a text, an interesting text in uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 36, where Jesus actually commands his disciples, if they don't have a sword, that they should go out and purchase one, because they're about to go out and do all this traveling around, and uh, some of the highways and byways would have been dangerous places to travel on alone. And so in the context there, it seems that they were to to have that sword with them so that as they were going about doing their ministry, that they had a means of protecting themselves against highwaymen and and, uh, things of that nature. And so it seems as though Jesus was commanding the disciples to practice self-defense in that way. I think we can also make an argument from just the whole biblical ethic of, of, what it means to be, for example, a, a husband and a father, 
where we use these this terminology of husbands are supposed to be providers and protectors, and they're supposed to be caring for their family and, and caring for their uh, the safety and the well-being of their family. And I would argue that that includes self-protection, even up to and including the point of lethal force if necessary. And we would hope that we would never be in a position where lethal force would be necessary. But I would do not believe that it would be immoral to exercise lethal force in that kind of situation. Um, wisdom should be exercised. You know, we don't want to. We don't. We don't want to approach these things flippantly. Uh, we we do want to be wise as we approach these things. You know, the attitude of, oh yeah, I just need my guns. You know, type of thing. I I think that's a negative thing that we should not be uh, viewing things that way. Uh, there's a line. Why do you hate the Second not, Amendment, Ken? That's right. I hate the Second Amendment. <sighs> I do not. You're so woke. <laughs> I personally own firearms, and I'm I'm not uh, scared to to say yeah, that. Just your grandpa's and, hunting rifle, like Elizabeth Warren, you woke social justice warrior. <laughs> we won't get into. And I know that because uh, you called them firearms. No one calls them firearms. <laughs> <laughs> No, I know that, I personally know that um, you're always packing heat and willing to shoot anybody. See, and, that, and that's where the, I know you're uh, interjecting in here for the sake of humor and things, but in reality, this is a serious topic, and the the concept of just, um, you know, some people walk about with their firearms and, and they act like, oh yeah, I am about, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm willing to kill anybody at any at a moment's notice type of thing, and, and I, I think that's a very foolish attitude to be maintaining a willingness to use whatever force is necessary to stop a threat does not have to mean the death of the aggressor in every circumstance a lot of times it gets talked about that way and i think that's a dangerous and and foolish way to think about self-protection and and to think about the use of, of firearms and and I, i'd even go so far to say then this is this might uh, ruffle some feathers in in some sectors. Owning a gun is not a God given right. You know we should be striving to do what we can to protect ourselves uh, with whatever means is is necessary and appropriate and effective. Uh, but it's not a right to do that by a particular uh, weapon or means. Um, laws have to be obeyed, and where where there's laws that preclude you from using such things, there are some people in different parts of the country and in other countries around the world where that is just simply not an option. Well, abide by the laws in your region and seek to defend yourself through other means, um, but uh, owning a firearm is not a God-given right. Yeah, so um, John Piper takes a uh, more pacifist view of this whole debate, uh, kind of like a Mennonite would... Um, Amish, other people. A philosophy who, of non-aggression and non-violence. Yes, even in the face of a violent threat against you or your yes. family. And uh, and I think that's probably the where the most tension is. Because if, if someone takes the position, say a single person says, I'm not going to defend myself if someone breaks my house, it's like, okay, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But if a man is saying, I will not respond to a lethal threat with my own lethal force to protect my wife and children then that's where it kind of offends other people where it's like, what, what do you mean you wouldn't do that? That's you're supposed to do that to protect them. You know, we want to see them protected and that's your role. And that's, that's where a lot of uh, tension is introduced into this conversation. And, um, 
well, why don't you give some thoughts? You, you, wrote, you wrote down some notes beforehand. Give some thoughts on John Piper's stance because this he wrote an article for Desiring God or something that came out yeah. five years ago or so, and that kind of made some waves. Yeah, I looked up that article. It was actually 2015. Like that was oh, that's seven like eight years, year, seven years ago now. Yeah, coming up on eight. That's that's pretty wild. But uh, yeah, honestly, I think he makes a category error. Uh, in in the, in his article, he referenced many. Uh, instances and, and texts of scripture that speak of of suffering for your faith and the persecution that you endure on for the sake of Christ. And I do think in those kinds of in- instances, we are called to suffer willingly for our faith if it should come to that. But that's very different. And, and even how Paul applies those principles within the book of Acts is very different from what John Piper was describing about how we should respond to acts of aggression made against us. There's a fundamental difference between you know, encountering the robber on the street or encountering uh, someone breaking into your home. There's a fundamental difference between that and someone, uh, you being hauled off to jail for the sake of the gospel. You know, in, in, when you're hauled off to, to jail, we're actually called to, the, you know, we're suffering for Christ. We're, we're uh, enduring hardship for the sake of Christ. First Peter talks about this reality. Um, but even within that, we have the Right or the obligation, I suppose, to, to to not fight with physical force, but to use whatever means are at our disposal to defend ourselves. We see Paul, an example of that, as he sought to defend himself before the Roman authorities in the book of Acts. And so it wasn't like he just laid down and said, okay, you know, do whatever you will with me. No, he, within the system that he was in, he fought the system, but he didn't use legal or uh, lethal force, rather, or violent means to accomplish those ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a difference. There's a category difference between that kind of scenario and the random criminal that's seeking to bring harm against you or your family independently from, you know, you, you being a believer in Jesus Christ. And we would personally encourage other men to defend their household. Absolutely. So that that's kind of the position both of us take. No disagreement on that one today. Uh, yeah, we we understand, you know, for someone— Personally, like, for instance, I work here in my office. I used to just leave the door unlocked all the time. I don't have any kind of weaponry here with me. My position was just kind of if someone comes in and wants to blow my head off, that person will come in and blow my head off. I still don't carry any weaponry, uh, but I'll I'll lock the door at my, uh, you know, the, the deacons of our church has, have requested that I do that. And uh, we've got a video doorbell out front that kind of tracks who comes in and out. And I, I'm cool with that, but I'm not. I'm not coming in here every day thinking this might be the day I get in a gunfight in my office. You know, <laughs> I don't want to do that. I just don't want to do that. And I know that some people would make the argument, well, you got to protect yourself too to continue being the provider and protector for your family. But if you keep going down that road, then it's like this whole life is just up to you to be prepared for every inst- anything wrong that could ever happen, and that you guard against it. And it's I. I I just don't take that view. I, I think more of God's sovereign providence, and uh, I'm not. I'm looking to focus on what I need to focus on whenever I come to my office or do whatever I'm doing. And for me, I'm not going to do that. If someone else wants to do that in, in his own case, that's fine. But that's just not something I'm going to do. Yeah, there, there's a reality that like it, it does come down to wisdom and what your personal tolerances are. Um, you know, there's a, a time period where I would listen to these different podcasts that speak spoke a lot about self defense, and I was kind of in that mindset a lot. And 
I had to find a line between where there could be an unhealthy obsession on kind of those things and to where your mind is just kind of always in that headspace. Yes. And there is something to be said for always being alert and aware <laughs> of your surroundings. But it, it goes so far so quickly. I mean, I, I just saw a, a YouTube short this morning of this woman who's like telling women how to watch out for things in a parking lot. And it's just one minute that was full of all these tips. If you see this on your door handle, if you see like a dropped bag over here, they're trying to distract you with this. If there's a cart right behind your car, they want you to get out of your car to move the cart. And that's what they'll do this and that. And it's just like, I mean, I know my wife's going to listen to this episode, but if I shared that video with my wife, she'd be paranoid every time she went anywhere. Mm. And we have to think, I think more highly of God's sovereign protection over the lives of his children in that, if he allow, even if we think we're prepared, he may allow something to happen that we're totally unprepared for. And if yeah. we're not prepared, he will totally protect us in our ignorance a lot of times. So we just, yeah, I think we can go overboard. We can. And so there's, there's just, it, it, it does come down to just the issue of wisdom. We don't want to be foolish. We don't want to be completely ignorant. But we also don't want to be so consumed by that yes. mentality in that world that it distracts us from other great things that are going on around us. And again, it's uh, the tension of sovereignty, God's sovereignty and human stewardship. Mm -hmm. That that tension shows up in finances. It shows up everywhere, just everywhere. Um, And there's room for different methods on all this stuff. uh, And many of them are doubtful issues, third column things. So now how would you respond? Now someone might object and say, Oh, well, you know what you, you, I can't believe you would ever use lethal force because that would mean that, you know, if you die, you know where you're going. But if that other person dies, they're probably an unbeliever, and they're gonna you're gonna end up sending them to hell. How can you live with that on your conscience? Hmm. Well, I didn't send them there. They sent themselves there by doing something so foolish as to put their lives at risk uh, after living a life of sinful, willful rebellion against their Creator. So, and that's it. Like, that's, <laughs> so, what else is there to say? <laughs> The biblical ethic, and that's where I think that that passage from Exodus is very instructive for us, where uh, when a person is engaged in that level of criminal activity, they have forfeited their their right to their own life such that if their life is taken from them, God does not view that as an injustice. Mm -hmm. And then that could get into what happens when a gunman walks into a church. We could get into that too, but no time today uh, for that. And I really mean it this time. We are willing to talk about that, but we don't have time because we want to get these other questions in. Yeah, and and, like, and we'll just say his question also asked about war, and that's another question we're not going to well, get into at this at this yeah. time. Um, there's you know just war theory and things like that that we could spend a whole episode on, but uh, I think we'll, we're going to pin that discussion there. Uh, you want to ask the next question? Dylan asks. Well, it's not really a question. He tells us. Yeah, it's a, it's a statement. <laughs> this is Dylan, instruction. <laughs> Dylan commands, do one on the impassibility of God, whether or not God can suffer. Well, that's a big one, isn't it? Yep, sure is. You want to just provide us a, a definition of impassibility, impassibility? Uh, the impassibility of God. First thing to say is like many other categories that we can talk about, about God's attributes, these are man-made categories, and they're only as good insofar as they are backed by Scripture. And impassibility is one of the most difficult attributes of God to describe, and it's one of the most debatable because it can sometimes be taken too far. I mean, it's, I guess it's very easy to be taken too far. So we have to be really careful about how we talk about it. That's the first thing I want to say. 
Um, but if we were to, to give just a basic idea or definition of what impassibility is, we could say that at a, at a baseline foundational uh, perspective, the impassibility of God is that he is unable in his being to be changed or affected by his creatures. As the creator, he is immovable in his being and in his nature and cannot be changed or uh, manipulated in any way by his creatures. That's like the safe statement. And you, and I'm sure that if you're a thoughtful listener, you can think of right now ways that that can be mm, taken in a bad direction. Yeah, there's, well, like you said, there's there, things can kind of get uh, carried too far in different directions with this question. Uh, on the one hand, if you if you allow the pendulum to swing one far to the impassibility side of things where God ends up just kind of being a very stoic, um, I don't know what the right word is exactly, but just very un... Well, he's almost like a an idol made of stone. Yeah, like there's just no thing, like there's nothing that, that interacts or he's not uh, personal. engages. He, he, yes, that's the word. He loses a lot of his personal... Um, Ness, his personal attributes in that way. Whereas if the pendulum swings so far the opposite direction, we end up in open theism where God is just experiencing the world and time and everything just in the same way that we are. And he's just reacting to the things of the world and responding rather than being sovereign over all the events that are unfolding. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have to be very careful about the pendulum swinging uh, over there. And yet, as we do look at Scripture and as we see, the, as the Bible describes God, we do see on one hand that he does experience emotion and he does respond to mankind inside of time. Mm-hmm. Like we see this all throughout the Old Testament as God is is working with the people of Israel and the, the different things. And he tells them, hey, if you do this, then I'll do that. And if you do this, then I will do that. And so we see that kind of dynamic unfolding. And yet, on the flip side, we also know that God exists independently from time, and so it's not like he's just kind of moving through history like we are, or he's experiencing everything at the same in time like we are, but he exists independently from time. And so he, in, in some sense, I almost wonder if we could say that, that God experiences emotion, but he's experiencing all of his emotions simultaneously because he sees all of time simultaneously and also all these things and he's he doesn't his experience of emotion does not lead him to act in out of control ways like it might for us right so god's anger and his wrath he's not flying off the handle and it's not unpredictable in any sense it's not reactionary in the same way we react uh, I debated Will Duffy on open theism. Will Duffy is a disciple of Bob Inyart, who's one of the most famous open theists that there is. He's a pastor in Denver. And James White debated Bob Inyart, and Will Duffy is a disciple of Bob Inyart. And so much of that debate was me trying to help Will wrap his mind around God can be both transcendent and imminent. He can mm. be both outside of time and inside of time. Because the open theist starts with the presupposition that it has to be one or the other. And uh, that, that's like so many false teachings, you have to question the presupposition because that's 
what you end up with is where you start. And so you start with these presuppositions and say, well, is that valid? And, and that presupposition is not valid. So on the one hand, we recognize that God is personal in that he is grieved. In Genesis 6, when he was sorry or sad or grieved that he had made man, that was a true grief. Mm. Uh, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. When his anger is kindled, that's a real anger. When he exults over his children with joyful singing, that's a real exultation and joy. Okay, so we recognize all that. He's personal. But at the same time, we say he's not manipulated by man, uh, where we can make God sad when he was planning on being happy. He was planning on having a good day, and then we ruined it, right? Uh, you know, open theism takes this to that logical conclusion that, that God took a risk when he created mankind, but he, he wanted fellowship with man, and he knew that what, what would happen leading to the flood, that, that could happen. That was a risk. He didn't know for sure. And so he took the risk of love, and he created man, and we, we kind of ruined his creation for him. And so he was upset that he ever created in the first place. And so he had, he had to do a redo. And really where this leads, if you deny the impassibility of God and you say that God is changeable, that's immutability uh, when we say God is not changeable, but if you believe God is mutable and passable, that he has passions like we do, then he has, an, he has a relationship with time that's creaturely, just like ours, and he has a relationship with emotions that's creaturely, just like ours, and therefore uh, he has no certainty about the future. Mm. We we can ruin his year, we can ruin his day. He's not sure if it's going to happen. And uh, n- there is no such thing as certainty at that point. N- if God doesn't have it, we don't have it. Uh, no one has certainty about anything. We're all just together, God with us, experiencing what might happen day by day because everybody's unpredictable, including God. And, and this obliterates the distinction between creator and creature. Uh, the creator it has certain knowledge and he is predictable. He's immovable. Whereas creatures, um, we don't have certainty. Any certainty we do have comes from God, and uh, so we don't have certainty within ourselves, and we're very unpredictable. That, that's what's bad because we're changeable. We, we change all the time, and God doesn't. So major problems if you deny the baseline definition of God's impassibility. Two texts for us, uh, and I don't have the, uh, the references in my head. I just know the, uh, the, the content uh, off the top of my head. Uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so his character, his nature doesn't change in that way. Like like we said, keeping things in balance, that doesn't mean that he has no emotion or anything of that nature, but that his nature, his character doesn't change. He is predictable, He and uh, but then the other text is, um, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Uh, again, the, the character and the nature, the stability of God does not change. He is who he is and who he always will be. And that's a wonderful thing. Yes, it is. Well, that's not really tied to that. I was going to try to make a segue and say tied to that, but this is a different beast altogether. Yeah. Zach, Zach asked for us to provide a brief biblical case for cessationism. There's brief no such is, thing. Yeah, brief is really <laughs> tough. Super duper tough. And by no such thing, I'm referring to brief. 
I yeah. do believe there's a biblical case for cessationism, but it's it's tough to be brief. Well, you you made the notes here on this one, so. Well, I, I kind of want to let me preface the discussion do with it, do an illustration. You do. I'm going to sit back and chime in for humor's sake. And oh boy, whatever. So I, I had the opportunity to serve on jury duty a few years ago, and I, I got to I was in a jury pool for several different kinds of cases. One was a criminal case, one was a civil litigation case, and one was a um, a disability case. Where in our uh, in our state that I lived in at the time. Uh, disability was decided by a jury. Um, and for each of those kinds of cases, there was a different threshold of truth that we felt like or different different threshold of, of convincing that was needed to determine uh, culpability or guilty or, or, or uh, appropriate levels of disability, et cetera, that we would have to arrive at in order to render a decision before the law. So... Like the disability case was like a preponderance of the evidence, I believe, if, if I'm remembering correctly, where it's just like, yeah, you know, I just have to be 51% convinced. With so, so that was a disability case. With the litigation case, we had to do what was called a clear and convincing evidence. We had to be convinced in a clear and convincing way that the evidence was that such and such an individual was liable for such and such a thing. Where with the criminal case, we had to be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt or, or beyond a reasonable doubt, rather, uh, that this individual was guilty. And if there was a reasonable doubt in our mind, even if we thought it was probably true that he committed the crime, if there was a reasonable doubt that we were supposed to vote not guilty. And so there were these different thresholds that we were supposed to come across for these different cases. I use that as an illustration as we approach this conversation about cessationism. I don't know where you're at exactly on this, Jeremy, but to me, I don't think that this is beyond all doubt, but I do think there's clear and convincing evidence for this position. Would How how would you think through that kind of level of threshold? <sighs> this is like the, how much trouble can we get in episode? Yeah. <laughs> all right. I, I I like the way that that's set up and framed. And I, I think we're going to be on the same page. The one I struggle with is um, prophecy. And by that, I mean God's personal guidance within our own individual contexts. And we've talked through this. Yeah. And I, I do and see that as... we touched on it a little bit with the Scott Annual React video as well. Yeah, right. And so I do see that as some kind of a subset of prophecy, I don't know how you get away from that. And I also don't know how you say that that has ceased. So that's all I'm going to say for okay. now. <laughs> but 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 yeah, generally very much I agree with you. Yes. Okay. Cuz what and, and I and I put that in a different category than the miraculous sign gifts. I don't mm. count that as a miraculous sign gift given to the early church to verify the message of the apostles. I don't I see that yeah. as two different categories. Okay. Well, that's that's helpful. That's helpful to kind of make a distinguishing line there. But but generally speaking, yeah, same. Okay. We're on the same page. Same oh, page. Yeah. You know that. Yeah. So I own Charismatic Chaos by Trump. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in in walking through this discussion, as as we look at the different pieces of evidence, if we're going to use this, okay, we're we're looking at the evidence and we're we're coming to a clear and convincing evidence kind of position on this issue. 
Personally, I really like Tom Pennington's outline that he used. He, I first was exposed to it at his uh, during his lecture that he gave at the Strange Fire Conference several years ago uh, when that was going on. And again, any one piece of evidence from this outline may not be enough to conclude full cessationism just all on its own. But once you start stacking the pieces of information together, I do think that it presents a clear and convincing case in my mind that cessationism is a biblical doctrine. And just in case I put any doubt in anybody's mind, that Tom Pennington uh, sermon with his seven points, we actually made into a document that we um, have put out on our free resources uh, booth uh, for people that says seven, we, we gave it the title, Seven Reasons to Believe the Miraculous Sign Gifts Have Ceased. And so just so, just in case anybody was doubting, <laughs> I want to make that clear. Well, let's just walk through the seven points briefly. Uh, first is the the biblical scope and purpose of miracles. Uh, there's numerous texts that speak of uh, in in particular contexts where a miracle was given in order to authenticate the messenger that he was truly speaking for God in that instance, and the miracle authenticated the message. We see this with uh, Moses and Joshua. We see this with uh, Elijah. Uh, we see this in the New Testament with Jesus and the apostles, and uh, the book of Hebrews kind of looks back and refers to it in that way as well. Uh, so we see that we could take a principle from that and say, okay, we see that this is how miracles functioned historically based on these texts, as we are where we stand at today with the completed canon of Scripture, where the message has been authenticated, is there a need for ongoing miracle workers to continue that work if the, the if what we have in God's Word is complete? And so that would be one argument to say they're no longer necessary. Yeah, the the function and the role um, of those sign gifts that the way God used them in his program at that time, uh, they're, they're, the need is gone. Yeah. Second is the the end of the gift of apostleship. Something that's interesting is that even most charismatics would agree that though they identify as different individuals might be apostles today, they view them as a different kind of apostle than what the first century apostles were like. Like there's nobody looks at, um, no, no continuationist or, or charismatic says that the, present-day apostles are like capital-A apostles, just like Paul and Peter and James and the others, but rather would look at them as as apostles, but like little-A, lesser apostles. The vast so even, majority of us don't even use that word. Yeah, true. We'd say yeah. missionaries. Well, I think that if we're talking about from like a charismatic world, they would probably use apostle in a different way than we would think of a missionary. Oh, uh, you're, you're talking within the charismatic world. Yeah, because yeah, even, even the charismatics would say that there's a distinction between New Testament apostles and present-day apostles. Yeah. Like, they would still recognize that there's a difference there. Yeah, they would see—because uh, we would say there's still apostles in the sense of missionaries, but we, we never use that word, right? I mean, they're sent ones. Right. Um, yeah, but yeah, you're right. In the charismatic community, yeah, they, they call—they say they have the gift of apostleship or hold the office of apostle— but they have to make a definitional distinction because they're not doing the same things. Right. And so that's, that's yeah. the point we're making there, that if there is a distinction there and if there's a difference in the function, well, then at the very least baseline, we have to say there was a change in the gift of apostleship. And, of course, from our perspective, we believe that the gift of apostleship ended altogether. 
Uh, and we say that because of the qualifications for apostleship. Uh, they had to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. They had to be personally appointed by Christ. They worked miracles. And when we look at those qualifications that Scripture lays out in the book of Acts and in Second Corinthians, nobody fits that bill today. Yeah. Second Corinthians twelve twelve is one of the strongest. Yes. Surely the signs of an apostle were worked among you. Uh, if you claim apostleship, it comes with miraculous signs. Right. So that's point number two. Point number three is the foundational nature of the apostles and prophets is Ephesians 2.20, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. How many foundations do you need, Ken? How many? Just one. That's right. Just one. And it was the apostles and prophets, with apostles being listed first, that indicates, uh, at least in a small way, that this is talking about New Testament prophets. We were built on the New Testament offices of apostle and prophet. Right. Point number four in this outline, if we're just going to keep moving, uh, the nature of the New Testament miraculous gifts. And so we see the different cases like with tongues uh, in the New Testament. The word for tongue literally means language. These were known spoken languages. We could substantiate that from the book of Acts. Um, Prophecy, uh, we see that uh, prophets, Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets have the same function to speak infallibly for God. The, test, the standard for a prophet is that he had to be 100% correct, and if there was, if he was incorrect with his prophecy, we knew that, that that's a false prophet. It's not someone that God has sent. We see that from Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, and today's prophets just don't have the standard. I think there's uh, Wayne Grudem in his commentary, I think, puts a number. I was like, yeah, if I were to guess, I think present-day prophets are somewhere around like 80% correct or something like that, which is... It's kind of a laughable position to me, as, as, and but, I have a lot of respect for Wayne Grudem. C.J. Mahaney, Bob Coughlin, uh, D.A. Carson, Sam Wayne Storms. Grudem, Sam Storms, all kind of taking this position of, well, New Testament prophecy is different than Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophets had to be 100% correct according to Deuteronomy. In the New Testament, the church would judge what they were saying, and sometimes they'd be wrong, and they wouldn't kick them out of the church or say that they're not prophets. They would allow them to keep trying to prophesy even though they were wrong a large percentage of the time. And that's quite a stretch when you study yeah. through 1 Corinthians. That, that's, a, that's a stretch. And so we just see a distinction between how prophecy function in the Scriptures and how people are trying to make it function today. It's, it just doesn't line up. And the same we could say about healings. You know, in the Scripture we had undeniable, miraculous healings, where today we have like leg lengthenings and things like that, where it's just like, and, and unverifiable miraculous healings that um, they don't have the the undeniable nature that the first century miracles had. And so we see a distinction between the way these gifts function in the first century and in biblical times, and as then they function today. Point number five, we have the testimony of church history. And this isn't just post-Scripture church history. This is even history within the Scripture itself as you look at the tracing the line and the discussion about the miraculous within the New Testament itself. Paul wrote nine books after the book of 1 Corinthians. Tongues are never mentioned again. Uh, Paul's final letters of First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles that are to be the final instruction for how the church should operate once the apostles are off the scene. No mention of any of the miraculous things. Um, Not yeah. only that, I mean, he says that he's leaving his friends sick. Um, right. 
And yes. uh, of course, the famous, you know, to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. But uh, who did he, someone he left in, in Troas sick, he says, uh, specifically. Well, why didn't Paul heal him? Well, apparently right. um, there was even a fading within the New Testament of those gifts being less and less common. Even in the book of, of Philippians, we see Epaphroditus, you know, as, as he was sick yeah, almost unto death. Yeah, that's right. And, and Paul yeah, he was kind of like anxious. your family. Yeah. He must have been a chip chase. <laughs> he was sick all the time. Oh, man. <laughs> and so we see that trend, you know, and then, and then once we get to the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and, and chapter 2, it speaks of the miraculous in past tense language as, as if that was something that, that happened but is no longer currently happening. It wasn't Troas, it was Miletus. Trophimus, uh, I left sick in Miletus. Yeah. So we see, that, we see that trend within the New Testament uh, books and chronology itself, as we step out of church history, and, and I mean out of out of the New Testament and into the early church history and beyond, uh, I think we could confidently say that the majority of the most respected Bible teachers throughout church history have all been cessationist. I just have a sample of names: John Chrysostom from the 300s, Augustine from or, or Augustine, depending on your taste and pronunciation. <laughs> late three, oh, he's in the er, late 300s and into the early 400s. Of course, we skip a, a period of time when we had not as much writings during uh, some of these Middle Ages, but then we have with the Reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, moving into uh, a little bit more, getting closer to present day, Charles Spurgeon and B.B. Warfield, and of course, um, many present day theologians as well that all affirm the doctrine of cessationism and recognize that a lot of these um, a lot of these things that people claim today do just do not match up with what uh, was happening in the New Testament times yep yep um, there's a, a paper by Cleon Rogers talking about the gift of tongues in the post apolic church mm. uh, at post apolic apostolic church. Um, yeah, I'm going to read a, a section from him here because we just taught through the early church fathers in our Sunday school class. Mm. And he says, first, some of the apostolic fathers wrote from and to churches where the gift had been practiced during the time of the apostles. The most outstanding case of this is Clement of Rome in his epistle to the church at Corinth. If there was any early church where tongues was practiced, it was here. This was evidently one of the major problems that Paul had to contend with in his letter to them. Yet Clement of Rome never mentions the gift, even when speaking of their spiritual heritage. The same problem of disobedience to authority was present, but that of tongues had evidently been solved by their ceasing. Ignatius wrote to the church of Ephesus, where the first Christians spoke in tongues, but he too has nothing to say regarding the gift. And he goes on and gives more evidence, but Clement of Rome and Ignatius, we're going way early. We're talking the generation right after the apostles, Mm. and we've got letters they've written to churches. It's just not, yeah, not there. Not there. Just two more points, uh, but they're big ones. Um, Point number six, the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, Because Scripture is sufficient for faith and practice, things like prophecies, signs, additional revelations, etc., are unnecessary. To argue that these things have continued, uh, it undermines the authority and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And so that's, to me, that's a big one, uh, the sufficiency of Scripture and having everything that we need. Um, And then the final point, tongues and prophecy must be governed by the New Testament if we're going to argue that these things are present. 
they have to operate according to how Scripture says they ought to operate. And mm-hmm. we have tongues. Paul gives his instructions, 1 Corinthians 14, one at a time, never more than three. There must be an interpreter. And just our modern expression of tongues just does not meet this criteria. And we say the same thing about prophecy. Paul gives instructions there as well. One at a time, never more than three. And the message should be judged against previous revelation for its veracity. And healing. Healing was always instant right. and uh, whole. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's a briefcase for cessationism <laughs> there for you, Zach. <laughs> Rapid fire. I do have a sermon on that titled uh, No MSG. MSG standing for Miraculous Sign Gifts. I preached a, about a one-hour sermon that went over a lot of those same points in a little bit more detail. So, um Well, uh, that's where we'll have to end today. We covered a lot of ground on four major topics that people wrote in about or, like Obedient Obadiah, voice messaged in about. Speaking of things that won't make us popular and get us in trouble, I am just finishing up a uh, booklet on 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 regarding head coverings. That will be out soon. And we'll talk about it on the podcast when it comes out. It'll be available for free digitally, and I don't know what we'll do for print versions, but um, it's about 95 pages. So Very good. We'll have to link that in our notes below once uh, it's coming out soon. Will that be? November. November. Okay. Very good. Well, we had to leave a few questions on the uh, the cutting room floor a little bit, just as we uh, dealing with time issues. So, but uh, this has been fun for me anyway. Uh, I've enjoyed even if our uh, just our, our our discussion there at the beginning to open things out that was fun. And uh, yeah, maybe we should do this again at some point. Leave us more messages and send us voice messages through Facebook. I think that's great. And uh, let's see, we'll have a. a the next episode will come out in a couple of weeks, week or two, and it is an interview with Daryl Bach to yes. whet your appetite. Another conversation with Daryl Bach. This one totally focused on the already not yet of eschatology, the inaugurated but not fulfilled perspective of Scripture. And yeah, that so. both and idea in the midst of things. Yeah, that was a fun discussion. So I look forward to getting that out there. So until then, do theology.